when I was a little kid, I remember very distinctly kind of imagining what is my life going to be like in my 20s. And you, I don't know, maybe sometimes we watched like Friends growing up. And so sometimes I thought maybe it's going to be like that show, Friends. Like everyone just hanging out in one apartment, having a good time, walking around streets of some big city. Um, and you know, imagine all the fun things I'd do and fun people I'd meet and hang out with. And perhaps you did the same thing. And I'm sure when you imagined your future, you didn't imagine life being hard. When we mentally plan our futures, we don't plan for things not going our way. We don't plan for painful things happening to us. We don't plan for suffering to happen to us. We don't plan for hard things to happen to us. We plan all good things. I'm sure you didn't imagine yourself depressed or anxious or divorced or, or grieving a miscarriage or mourning infertility or dealing with wounds given to you by people who are supposed to love you and care for you and protect you. I'm sure you didn't imagine people making fun of you or, or friends betraying you. And I'm sure you didn't imagine yourself struggling with money or, or addictions. And I'm sure you didn't imagine yourself unemployed or single desiring to be married or childless desiring children or for the hundredth time talking with your kid about their behavior. When we imagine our futures, we don't imagine life being hard. But when the bus finally drops us off in our future, often it, it's a lot different than we imagine that destination to look um, when we're imagining in the past. And those moments of pain and hardship and disappointment and, and suffering, uh, often that's when the deepest questions, the, the questions that are sitting at the bottom, the most deepest place of our heart and soul, rise up to the surface. And often we ask those questions um, to God when we have um, those hard moments. And so we're going to take just a moment and write on the board, um, when you're in going through hard times or you're suffering and things aren't going as you want and you're, you're hurting, what sort of questions um, do we ask God in those moments? And you can make, if it's too personal for you to share what, what you ask, just share what you've heard other people say. So what questions do we ask God in those moments? Maybe like, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Why me? What did I do wrong? Why me? Yep. <coughs> what other questions come up in those moments of hardship? How long is it going to last? How long will this last? What I think of is, uh, where are you, God? You know, where are you in this? Like, this is happening. Where are you? Any others? How can this happen? How can this happen? How can this happen? Yeah, any other questions you ask when you're suffering, going through pain? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you allowing this? <clears throat> Can't you just take it away? Yeah. Are you really up there? Can't you just take it away? <coughs> are you really up there, you said?
could probably go on, but these are some of the questions that come up as we're going through hardship or suffering. And these are the questions we would ask. We ask God, and some of these are some of the things we're maybe always wondering and want to be assured about. Um, but in moments of hardship, suddenly it's like, well, I really need the answer to this. And this evening we're continuing this Beginning the Journey Home series in the book of Genesis, and we're continuing with Jacob's life. And right now, life is hard for Jacob. Things have not turned out as he planned, and he just lived through what were probably the most difficult 14 years of his life. He used to live with his family back in Canaan, but then he cheated his brother twice. Um, he deceived his dad, lied to him, tricked him to get his brother's blessing. And because of that, his brother wanted to kill him. And so he had to leave his family, travel a month over to his uncle's house and stay with him until Esau's brother cooled down and didn't want to kill him anymore. But things, you know, leaving all that, that sounds like enough drama. Um, Then he came over to Laban's house, his uncle's, and now it's just been hard there. He's been on the receiving end of all those things that he did back in his his, his home family because now... Laban is, has now cheated him, and Laban has deceived him and tricked him. And now Jacob had this rivalry with his brother Esau, and now he's watching his two wives who are having this bitter, jealous rivalry in his own house, and it's bringing pain to him. They're treating him like a commodity, um, paying to spend the night with him. And it's just a horrible situation. Life has taken Jacob down a path he did not plan. Um, but in these chapters, we have to keep going back to chapter 28. The backdrop for all of it is as Jacob's about to cross the border, he's leaving Canaan, his, the place where God said, I'm going to give this to you, and he's heading off to Haran, where his uncle is, and as, before he crosses the border, God comes to him and meets him in this dream and says, Jacob, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless other people through you, and I'm going to be with you, I'm going to keep you wherever you go, and I'm going to bring you back here safely. And so those are all the promises that Jacob gets as he's leaving and going over uh, to, with his uncle. But I think if we we're in Jacob's shoes, maybe we'd be asking some of these questions like, really, God, are you with me? Well, where are you? How long is this going to last? Why, you know, why is all this stuff happening to me? And maybe we'd be asking those questions. And I think two of the most fundamental questions that maybe, I don't know if all these could boil down to it, but the two that I think uh, I would ask a lot, or I've heard a lot of people ask are, where are you, God? And why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this pain? Why am I going through this struggle? Why is my life so hard? So it's where are you and why is this happening? And the big question this passage answers is, what do we need to remember when life is hard? What do we need to remember when life is hard? What do we need to remember when life is hard? And so we've already read the end of chapter 30. Let's recap what the end of chapter 30 said, and then we'll answer this question in chapter 31. What do we need to remember when life is hard? Well, after 14 years in Haran with Laban, after seven years of marriage to his wife, Rachel, um, their first child is born. He and Rachel's first child is born, named Joseph. And at this point, Jacob says, okay, it's time for me to return home. It's been 14 years. I have uh, two wives and two um, maid servants who have had kids with, and now I've had my first child with the, the lady I love, Rachel. It's time to go home. Um, but Laban protests the idea because Jacob's been working for Laban as a shepherd, and he's like his best employee. He's, Laban looks and he recognizes uh, everything's just gone well for Jacob. He knows what he's doing. And then we're told um, he's kind of like consulted the spirits, you know, whether that's really worked or not. But uh, he cons- says, I've consulted by divination, and I know that God is blessing me through you. And so he's like, I want to keep you on the team. You're like my top earner. 
Um, what do I need to pay you? Name your wages so I can keep you here. And in that time, shepherds would often receive 20% of the flock as their wages. And so Jacob, he proposes this deal that Laban can't refuse. He says, well, most of the sheep uh, in that day, I mean, any day, are all white. And the goats are either all black or all brown. And then Jacob's like, okay, you can uh, take out all the sheep and goats that are spotted or striped or speckled. Take them out to begin with. And I'll just start with these ones that are all black, all white, all brown. And whatever sheep and goats are born from this flock that have spots or speckles or stripes, I'm going to keep those. And you can keep all the rest. So I'm going to start with zero. And whatever happens, happens. I'm going to get that. And so it's already pretty rare for them to be striped and speckled and spotted. And then he's starting with no striped and speckled and spotted to mate with the ones that are there. And so it's like, okay, Laban's like, this sounds great. Uh, you're going to get hardly anything. You might even get nothing. And so he's like, this sounds great. This is going to be far less than the 20% that shepherds usually get. And so Jacob sets to work after they agree, and he puts two strategies into place. First, he applies this folk tradition, um, which believed that whatever... What, what the animals saw in their line of sight when they're mating affected kind of how they came out. And so he wants them to be spotted and striped and speckled. So he takes these sticks, kind of peels the bark off or whatever, puts it in front of them while they're mating, and thinks like, okay, if they're seeing that, they're going to come out that way. So that's one of his strategies. And then the second one is he only uh, lets the ones mate, uh, 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 only the... Uh, strong ones, he lets mate in front of those sticks. He doesn't let the weakened ones mate in front of those because he's like, okay, if the strong ones are looking at the spotted sticks, um, they're going to create strong spotted, speckled, or striped little babies, and so I'm just going to have this big, strong flock, and um, that's where uh, Jacob is at. And so let's move to chapter 31 as we uh, and see how he's doing. This is He does this for six years, and he's very successful. He's so successful, in fact, that Laban's sons start talking amongst themselves and start talking to their dad, saying, hey, Jacob's taken all of our wealth. He's taken the whole flock for himself. And at this point, God says to Jacob in verse 3 of chapter 31, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. There's that word again, I'll be with you. God said he would be with them when he came here. Jacob calls his two wives, Rachel and Leah, to have a little family meeting out in the field. And he has to convince them it's time to leave. And so we hear the opening lines in in his speech in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 31, it says, Jacob says, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. So his speech to them focuses on two themes. Your father has been against me, but my God has been with me. And Jacob explains how, well, we agreed on the wages. We said it from the beginning. My wages are going to be the spotted, the speckled, and the striped. But then Laban kept changing it. Laban would be looking, and if he was like, oh, it seems like the flock is you know, pumping out spotted animals. So he's like, okay, never mind. Your, your wages aren't going to be the spotted animals. It's going to be the striped ones. And sure enough, all the animals will start having striped uh, babies. And then he's like, okay, no, never mind. Not the striped ones. Now the speckled ones. And so Laban's trying to cheat him out of his wages. And it didn't matter what he did, God would make all the flock produce whatever you know, Laban changed it to. And it may have seen, Jacob may have thought, you know, this is happening because of my little scheme here with the sticks and that little breeding strategy I was doing. But he tells his wives, God came to me in a dream and made it clear God's the one doing this. God's responsible for the flock coming out in Jacob's favor. 
And then God also gave him a reminder in his dream. Verse 13, he says this. I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Now before uh, Jacob left Canaan for Haran, God appeared to him, like we said. He appeared to him uh, in a dream, and then he named the place Bethel, which means house of God, because he's like, wow, this, God's presence is here. This is God's house. This is where God dwells. His presence is um, being brought down to earth here. And the most common belief in Jacob's time was that God's uh, kind of had like a specific territory. If you're in the land of Canaan, you've got a God there that's in charge of that territory. If you travel over to Haran, now you've got a different God in charge of this territory. So as you change territories, you're getting into a different place where God is in charge, um, and you have to appease them and think about them. And so perhaps Jacob, even though God appeared to him, was thinking, well, once I cross over into Haran, like I've left Yahweh's territory, my God's territory, I've entered somebody else's territory. But here, over in Haran, 550 miles away from Bethel, God comes to him again and says, I am the God that spoke to you at Bethel. And now I'm speaking to you again here. And I've been with you here too. In other words, God's impressing upon him that he is not limited to one certain place. I was God there, and I'm God here. You know, I'm traveling with you everywhere you go. And the big question this passage answers is, what do we need to remember when life is hard? And the first answer is, we need to remember that God is with us. We need to remember that God is with us. When life is hard, we need to remember that God is with us. Jacob has traveled to a foreign land where life has been hard. And God reminded them, I'm the God of where you came from. I'm the God of where you are. I'm the God of where you'll go. And I've been with you. I am with you. And I'm going to be with you. It's like, there's no place you're going to go, no territory you're going to go where I'm not there. And it's easy for us. Sometimes we can treat, I know it's not a territory, but we can treat suffering kind of like this territory, this land where God really isn't present. Okay, I've entered suffering territory now, and I left God back there when life was good. That's where he's at, and now I'm in suffering, and God must not be with me here because this isn't the place where he is God over it. And maybe he was back with me back there, but now I'm journeying into a foreign land, and I'm beyond his will, I'm beyond his plan, I'm beyond his presence. He's no longer with me. And in times of hardship, like we said, we often ask, well, where are you, God? Where are you in this? Why aren't you with me? And we long to know that he is with us, and we long to know we're not alone. We're still under his care. We're still under his protection. We're still under his guidance, that we're not outside of his care, that we haven't gone to a place where he can't go to. God's answer to that question of where are you is I'm right here. I'm with you. And so if you're in a hard place tonight or been in a hard place or see a hard place coming, like the good news is God is with you. It's not a territory you can't go into. After the speech to his wives, um, they all agree it's time to leave and they see, well, God's transferred our father's wealth over to you. So what else do we have here? And so for the rest of the chapter of uh, chapter 31, Jacob is on his way back home. And I wish we could read every verse here. We didn't get to read it you know, during the service, but it's a long story, so we need to summarize a bit. And so with everyone in agreement, Jacob packs up all his stuff without telling Laban. It's sheep shearing season, um, so they're you know, cutting all the wool off the sheep. So this would be like the busiest time of the year for Laban. And so he's off shearing his sheep. So Jacob's like, okay, I can slip away. Laban's distracted. Um, but Rachel takes something she shouldn't, and this puts her life at risk later. Um, she steals her father's household gods, which would... 
Um, sometimes they could be pretty big, but in this case, she sits on them later. So they're probably like these little things, and it was thought maybe these bring good fortune, maybe there's some sort of connection with the ancestors here. Um, but in whatever, for whatever reason, she takes them thinking like, okay, I'm going to bring this with me. Like you can kind of see her spiritual beliefs here that these little statues are going to help her out in life. Um, but three days after they leave, Laban finds out, uh, and he musters a group to pursue them. And it seems like he has an intent to take Jacob by force. But God appears to Laban in a dream and tells him, don't harm him. And then when Laban catches up to Jacob, he vents his anger. So take a look at Laban's speech in verse 26 of chapter 31. Verse 26, And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done, that you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away, because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Laban doesn't like that Jacob ran off secretly with his daughters like they're prisoners of war, like he went and grabbed them in the night and ran off with them. And he's like, well, I would have liked to say goodbye and throw you a little party um, from what we've learned about Laban. Um, you know, Laban's intentions are always, on the surface might seem good, but you know, would he have really thrown this, Ooh, I want to throw you a little party with mirth and song? It's like, well, Laban isn't really a guy to be trusted. But he also doesn't like, he says, you stole my household gods. And Jacob says, well, I didn't take them. Search our tents, and if you find the person that took them, like they, you can kill them. Their life is in your hands. And Laban goes from tent to tent to tent, and finally, you know, builds all this climax, comes to Rachel's tent, goes in, and she's hidden them in this little camel sack, and she's sitting on them. And her father comes in, and she just keeps sitting on them. She's like, oh, you know, excuse me. Um, you know, it's that time of the month. I can't get up. Sorry, Dad. Um, and so that's how she, her life is spared by her deceit, and she stole these, these gods uh, and was trying to, I don't know, and it's kind of, it's ironic comparing it to God saying, I was with you in Canaan, I'm with you here, and it's like Laban's beliefs, like, you stole my gods. Well, God, our God can't be stolen. You know, God with me wherever I go. God can't be overtaken. God can't be stolen, but um, there's this uh, ironic um, comparison here. And then Jacob, now he launches into his own angry speech. He berates Laban for pursuing him and for mistreating him for the past 20 years. Like, have you ever had a moment where you just kind of like bent to somebody and how they've treated you? Uh, he's like, even though uh, your flocks have prospered under me, you've been harsh to me. Um, usually shepherds uh, in that day weren't required to pay for the loss um, of one of the sheep or goats by a wild animal. Like, oh, that's just kind of like happens on the job and you didn't have to pay for it. Laban required Jacob to pay for every one of them. And usually shepherds, either they weren't required to pay for any that were stolen or only for the ones that were stolen during the day because, like, hey, you should have had your eyes open then. Um, but we're told um, that Laban required Jacob to pay for every single one stolen. So let's pick up Jacob's speech in verse 41. Here's the end of it. It says, These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. You've changed my wages ten times. And if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. The big question this passage answers is, 
What do we need to remember when life is hard? And the second answer is, we need to remember that God is for us. We need to remember that God is for us. When life is hard, we need to remember that God is for us. Because Jacob, Jacob says to Laban, if God had not been on my side, if God had not been for me, surely now he would have sent me away empty-handed. God, Jacob recognizes God has been for me. He's been on my side this whole time. He's, been, he's had my back. And even though Laban's plan was to do Jacob harm, God worked it out for Jacob's good. In the midst of suffering and hardship, we often ask, we have some of the questions up here, God, why is this happening? We ask the why question. The question before was, where are you? Like, it just seems like I'm alone here. The second question we ask is, why is this happening? Why does this keep going on? Why aren't you taking this away? Why am I in such pain? Why am I going through this? Why, God? We want to know, is there a purpose to all this? We want to know if there's a point to it all. It just seems pointless. It seems like this is unnecessary pain, God. Why is it happening? We need to remember, in whatever we're going through, that God is on our side. He isn't against us. He's for us. Jesus has removed any barrier that separates us from God, any reason that God would have to be against us. Jesus has removed it by taking it upon himself. And now there's nothing that can separate us from his love. No suffering, no sin, no hardship. And the words of Romans 8 say that God works out all things, all things for the good of those who love him, even suffering. And you could even say especially suffering because a lot of the New Testament talks about rejoice when you're suffering because God is doing something in your life through that. And we're never beyond God's presence with us. And we're never beyond God's purposes for us. When we ask that why question, it's a purpose question. What's the purpose in this? And we're never beyond God's purposes or beyond God's presence. And Jacob and Laban agree to live at peace with each other, but they don't fully trust each other, so they're like, okay, I can't keep an eye on you, so let's make a covenant with God, like a, you know, this agreement, um, a firm agreement, and we're going to set up these little pillars witnessing to this agreement we made. And so whenever we see him, it's like, okay, that, you know, that's God's watching over us, so we don't do each other harm. And so they eat a meal together as an expression of peace. And Laban kisses his grandchildren, his children, or his, da- yeah, his daughters goodbye. He blesses them, and then he returns home. And when life is hard, we need to remember these two truths. God is with us, and God is for us. God is with us, and God is for us. And at the end of his 20 years in Haran, Jacob has come to realize and believe these two truths, those first several, the first chapter 29, first part of verse 30, Jacob doesn't talk about God hardly at all. And now he's having these realizations. He's starting, you know, when we have glasses on, these affect um, how we see the world. And Jacob, he's got a new pair of glasses for how he sees the world. He's like, I see now that God is with me and God is for me. And he doesn't have this full and mature faith, um, but he is seeing God in a new light and seeing things from a new perspective. If you don't have a, a, a bulletin, I'll just grab it. I want you to write some, I'll grab a bulletin and pen and pass them around. I just want you to think about a couple things um, to write down. Because there might be a situation where you're, here, let's give this to you and pass it around. Grab a bulletin. There might be a situation where you're asking God, where are you? Where are you, God? Um, and so think, so write down in a list, what, what's the situation where you're asking, where are you, God? Or a situation where you're asking, uh, why is this happening? So make a little list, write down situations where you're saying, where are you, God? Or you're saying, why is this happening, God?
or if you shared one of these questions, maybe that's the one you're asking. Write down where, where are you asking, what situations are you asking that in? happening. There's something you've moved past that happened a while ago, and you were asking that, and you've been like, okay, I'm just going to stuff that away in the drawer. Can't deal with that. It's too hard. Where are you, God, or why is this happening? Write that list. truth is that God is with us, God is for us. The problem is that we often believe a lie that leaves us, leads us away from God. And the serpent, back in Genesis 3, got Adam and Eve to reject God by feeding them a lie, by telling him, you know, God doesn't have your best interests in mind. He lured them away from God with a lie, and he still does that today. The serpent, a.k.a. Satan, is what he's called in the New Testament, um, is still doing that today. And the serpent wants us to believe that God has left us and that God is against us. You know, like, God isn't with you. God isn't for you. God's left you. God's against you. He's working against you. He's abandoned you. He doesn't want good things for you. His will is not in your best interest. You should ditch him and just do it your own way. And this is how sin entered the world and how sin enters our lives and other people's lives. When we sin, we're, we're living for ourselves instead of for God because we've been lured by the lie that, you know, God isn't worth following. Don't do it his way. Do it your way. And when we start living for ourselves instead of for God, that's what sin is. When life is hard, the serpent says, well, if God was really with you, would life be so hard? God has left you. He isn't with you. He doesn't care. He isn't paying attention. Your pain is proof of that, that God doesn't care. He isn't with you. You're on your own. Or he tells us, if God was really for you, would you be going through this? Wouldn't he take this away? Your pain is proof that God is against you. I'm sure many of you have heard of something called uh, the problem of evil, um, or you've at least heard the question people bring up when they talk about it. People bring it up, as I hear all the time, as a reason they don't believe in God or struggle with it. And the question goes like this. How could a good and loving God allow such evil and suffering in the world? How many of you have heard that, that question? How could a good and loving God allow such evil and suffering in the world? And the, the choice is this. Either he was good and not powerful because... He's not taking it away. If he's good, he must not have the power to take it away. Or he's powerful, and he's not good. Um, so he could take it away, but he's not good enough. He doesn't care enough to do anything about it. And so people say, in either case, he's not a God worthy of worship. And that just sounds like a lie straight from the serpent that's trying to lead us away from God. Because this line of thinking shows we have this fundamental misunderstanding of God. It views God as like this captain 
of our luxury cruise ship. And his job uh, is to make sure that we're provided with the exact you know, room service or whatever it is and entertainment and you know, happiness and comfort that we want. We expect him to provide a comfort-filled, stress-free life of relaxation. And we summon his room service to our life to keep us comfortable and happy. And then when God's service you know, isn't up to our standards, well, we'll give him a one-star review. He's not very, you know, worth really worshiping. Why would I want to go on that ship and cruise on that? If he can't deliver a suffering-free luxury cruise through life, well, then he must either be an uncaring or a weak captain. But he certainly isn't both. Otherwise, he would give us well, that thing that we want. And this is a God created in the image we want him. But it's the opposite. God created us in his image, and he's recreating us in his image. We can't say, like, God, this is what I want you to be, and if you're not that, you know, I'm, you're not worthy of my worship. But we're the ones created in his image. And a more accurate view of God is to see him as a father who's parenting his children to help us grow into maturity. And parents have to make lots of decisions that their kids don't understand at the time that it's made or enjoy at the time that it's made. And like human parents, God loves us enough to do what is best for us, even if it means we will temporarily dislike him. And isn't that what a parent needs to do? Make decisions that you know are best for your kids, even if in that moment they're going to temporarily dislike you um, for a time. So how many of you have been fishing? How many of you know fishing's about and gone fishing? Well, I don't know, maybe like half, or people just didn't confess. Um, but there's different ways to go about fishing. Uh, there's catch and release fishing. Um, and when you do that, you're like, well, I'm not going to keep these and eat them. I'm going to just catch them and release them back into the water, back into the wild. And, but the problem is, check this out, it comes from behind a candle. The problem is that fish hooks um, have this little barb on them. You can't see it. I guess I could pass it around. But all, does everyone know there's like, they've seen a little barb on the fish hook? That little barb... Um, is so that the hook doesn't easily come out of their mouth. And so sometimes in catch and release fishing, if people are like, I want to do minimum amount of harm to this fish, I just want to release them back, you know, not really hurt them, um, they'll take and they'll file that little barb off so that the hook can easily come out of the fish's mouth. And the serpent, a.k.a. Satan, never uses our barbless hook. He doesn't intend to catch us and release us unharmed. He wants to tempt us, Get us to bite and never let us go. And so let me ask a question. This is a you know, fish lure. Is this food? No, this isn't food. If I eat this, it's not going to taste very good. Um, so what is this? If it's not food, what is it? Fake. It's a fake? Yeah, it's a lure. It's really a lie. It's a deception. It's meant to look like food um, so that a fish wants it. And so this is, this is a, a lie to get fish to want something that's actually harmful to them. And a good lure has to be convincing. And it's designed to lure fish so they can be trapped and captured. It has to look good. It has to look for real food. And the serpent doesn't have any real food to offer. Satan has no real food to offer us. He only has a barbed hook sin. So he needs to dress it up. He needs to make it look like real food. He needs to make it, put a lie around it so that we want it, so that we want to swallow it. You know, if we, he's just like, hey, check it out, um, you know, God kind of stinks, look what I have to offer. Oh, that looks really nice, serpent, I guess I'll take that. No, he's gonna, we're never going to swallow that because sin is self-destructive. We talked about that late, last week, selfishness is self-destructive. 
And so he makes it look like real food, so we want to eat it, so we want to swallow, so we want to bring it into our lives and think it will actually satisfy us. And if a fish has swallowed a barbed hook deep into its stomach, it takes gentleness, it takes patience by a fisherman to get it out without causing a great amount of harm and ripping up their insides. But even with that gentleness and patience, a fisherman can be as gentle and patient as they want. It's still going to be painful taking the hook out. And when God comes into our lives, he finds us like fish who swallowed the barb hook of sin deep into our hearts, deep into our lives. And God cuts us loose from serp- the serpent's line so we're no longer controlled by him, but it takes gentleness and patience and time to get that hook out of us. But even with the most gentleness and the most patience, there's still going to be pain along the way, taking sin out of our lives. And the purpose of that pain isn't to do us harm. It's to remove something from us that isn't supposed to be there. Sin and lies about God are not supposed to be there. And so the pain isn't meant to harm us. It's meant to bring life. And if you think about it, when the fish is feeling the most pain is when the fisherman has them the closest and is working the most diligently um, to do what's best for them. In that moment when trying to take this hook out, like they're holding on to the fish and they're working gently and patiently to get it out of them so that they don't have it in their system anymore. And all throughout the New Testament, Jesus' first followers, like I said before, tell us rejoice that we're going through suffering. And why? It's because in those moments of pain, it's when God is the closest and he's working the hardest for our good. And, and the purpose of the pain is not to is not to harm us, but it's to remove sin and lies from about God that are not supposed to be there. So is God good? Yes. God is good. And so he desires what is best for us. And is God powerful? Yes, God is great. And so he's powerful enough to work out all things for our good, even suffering, even hard things in our life. And God has already proven his love for us and that he was willing to suffer and die for our sakes. And if you think about it, Jesus went to the cross, took the penalty for our sin and selfishness. And in that, he actually uh, was abandoned. God abandoned Jesus and was against him so that he, he could be with us and for us. Because that's what we're supposed to have. If you look at back in Genesis 3, we get sent out of the garden, sent out of God's presence, uh, because we were fighting against God. And now there's this God, we're like rebels against God's kingdom. And God is a king, and so he doesn't tolerate rebels against his kingdom. And so he fights against those rebels. But because of Jesus, now we can be with God, uh, and he can be for us once again. And on the cross... I mean, the amazing part of God's love is that even while we are still sinners, even while we are unworthy of his presence, even while we are fighting against him, Christ died for us to take away what, uh, what was keeping us from him. So go back to that list we wrote about the times when your situations in your life are now where you're asking, where are you, God? Um, why is this happening? You're asking these questions. And just write over the top of it or on the side or somewhere or circle it, do something, write... God is with me in this, and God is for me in this. God is with me in this, and God is for me in this. God is with me in this, and God is for me in this. Maybe those words are hard for you to write. Maybe they're even harder to believe. Um... For me, when I think about, you know, right, if there's pain 
Oh, there's hardship, and then I write, God, the hardest one for me to write is God is for me. Um, like, God is on my side. Like, he's doing this because he's on my side, and he's doing something good with it. Um, and we'll get to it eventually in um, Genesis 50. One of the most profound verses about suffering in the entire Bible it comes in the very first uh, book of the Bible, Genesis 50. We'll get there. Um, when Joseph says, you know, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So every hard thing that comes into our life, every suffering, um, all the pain, whatever the world or people or whoever it is or whatever it is intends for evil, well, God intends it for good. And so even something somebody else intends to hurt you, God can use to heal you. As we close, one of the, I don't know, most interesting things about Babies, maybe it's not that interesting, but it's a cool phrase. Uh, it's the phrase object permanence. How many people know object permanence is? Heard of that? Object permanence. It's that babies, the reason peekaboo is so fun is because when they, they don't have this sense of permanence uh, of when they can't see an object, um, they think it's gone. So you cover their face and they're like, oh, dad like disappeared. Then you uncover it, dad's back. Dad's gone. Dad's back. And it's like they don't have the sense that, oh, Dad's just behind the blanket holding it over my head. And so it's like a really fun game for them. Or uh, Hudson, you know, sometimes you could, you could like sneak around on him because he would forget. Like as soon as you like duck below the crib, you can crawl around in the room and he's not watching you through the slats. And because he's like, oh, Dad's gone. I can't see him. Not that guy's kind of doing his thing. But then eventually at some point I tried to crawl in his room and I looked and he's just staring at me like, what are you doing? And, but anyway, so this thing, object permanence, um, and eventually babies grow out of it. They realize, oh, when you duck behind the wall, you're still there, even though I can't see you. Um, and for us, like we all start as babies in Christ. We all start as little babies um, with our faith. And our faith, when it's immature and it's needing to grow, we kind of have this difficulty with object permanence with God. Because it's like, as soon as suffering comes into our life, it's almost like that puts a blanket over our face. And we're like, okay, I guess God's gone now, and he's not for me, and he can't care for me. He's not in the room. He's not with me in this. Um, and then it's like we come back out of suffering, um, and maybe like, oh, the blanket's off. Oh, God's with me again, and like he's, he's taking care of me again because I'm not suffering, and things are going as I planned and how I want it to go. And we need to, God wants us to mature out of a place where we have, uh, where we're babies in our faith, and we're... S- s- thinking every time suffering comes in, oh, God left. He disappeared. Um, he's not here anymore. He's not caring for me and working for me. And we're supposed to have this object permanence where it's like any, it doesn't throw a blanket over us anymore. This is hard, but I know God is with me. I know he's for me. I know that I don't know what he's doing here. And we can still say it. This hurts. And we can cry and we can mourn and we can grieve um, because there's real loss and there's real things that the world takes from us. But then we can also trust, like, but God didn't leave me. And God is working all things, even this, out for my good um, to be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories uh, of Jacob, who does not deserve your presence at all, does not deserve you in the least bit to be on his side, uh, because we've seen how selfish and hurtful he's been in his past. And it gives us hope that our sin doesn't separate us from you because of what Jesus has done. And suffering doesn't mean we're separated from you either. And so would you help us to receive that truth uh, even when life is hard, 
which can be the hardest times to, to believe and trust that you're good and powerful. You're with us and for us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.